you got a Bible, and I hope you do, we're studying the book of Hebrews together. Hebrews is towards the end of the Bible. Uh, Hebrews is uh, one of the earliest Christian sermons we have preserved for us. And we're working through it slowly and deliberately. I'm trying to savor it. And so you can find it in uh, any Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love to give you one if you can't afford one. This is the most important book ever written. And I believe if you study it, it will change your life. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 4 to 14. Hebrews chapter 1, starting at verse 4, it says this. So Jesus became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels servants and his spirit servants of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Your scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same. Your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. Will you pray for me as I pray for you that in the next few minutes God's word will be rightly preached and sensitively heard? Let's pray. Jesus, we just pray that you would make much of yourself. Lord, trying uh, to to cast a vision of these words uh, to us, Lord, is like trying to describe the Grand Canyon. It's just not possible unless you, by your Holy Spirit, enliven us and open our eyes and you do what we begged you to do in that first song. Would you come and would you enlighten our hearts? Would you illumine our minds? Uh, Would you magnify Jesus Christ? Would you restore our faith and transform our lives? Because we need you. We are desperate for you. We need to see you. We need to hear you. We need you, a word of life. Come. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Uh, next week, you'll get to hear my wife tell a couple stories about uh, her experiences with angels. She's seen a lot more of them than I have, and I wanted her to tell you about them, um, but she's keeping the children's church right now, so she's telling them about angels. So when your kids get home and they start looking for angels everywhere, it's, it's Claire's fault. Just blame her. Um, I don't know if that's what she's teaching our kids or not. I made that up. Um, but I did want to tell you one story, because in this section of Hebrews, uh, we see that the preacher of Hebrews is trying to 
to argue. He's trying to outline that Jesus, uh, this man who walked the earth, who really died and, um, and, and really ate bread and stuff, really died on a cross and then was buried, dead and gone and who was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father, that this man is greater uh, than the angels. And so he's trying to argue this, that Jesus is higher than the angels. And he stacks up seven Old Testament quotations to make his point. And he's trying to show these things. But a lot of us haven't had any experience with angels. And so I figured I'd tell you a couple stories about them I'm from modern day. Last, year, last week I told you about my mom seeing an angel during Hurricane Fran. And Claire and I lived abroad in southern Africa in a place called Zambia. And in Zambia, there's only four roads in the whole country. One goes north, one goes south, one goes east, one goes west. And uh, they're all about a lane and a half wide. And everything is spread out so far that to get anywhere, like from my house to the capital, you have to drive as hard and as fast as you can possibly go because there's not really any pit stops along the way. And you don't want to spend a night in the bush. It's not like you can, you know, on the way from here to Key West where you decide, ah, we'll just spend the night in Jacksonville. Like there's nothing like that. You have to make the whole trip in one day. And so you get in the car and you drive as hard and as fast as you can, 80 mile an hour on a lane and a half. And when you meet a car, you both have to decide who's going to hit the ditch first. Um, and we were out there driving, and I'm driving this little diesel Isuzu pickup truck. It's a, a five-speed shifter on the left, steering wheel here, pedals are just the same. And we're driving back from the capital city. We left the capital city that morning at about 3.45, 4 o'clock in the morning, about a half hour before the sun rises so that we can get home before the sun sets. And we have two of our best friends uh, that we just happened to pick up uh, in the capital city. They needed a ride back, and we picked them up, and we head down the road. And I get to this spot where I'm behind like three or four 1960s diesel log trucks. And they're moving logs, but they're moving logs at like 27 miles per hour. And I see a hole, and so I go into like full-on Nemechek mode. Now, some of you know who Nemechek is. He's a NASCAR driver. And so I slam that thing into third, and I whip out beside him, and I start going as fast as that little four-cylinder diesel will go. But that thing is not made for gaining speed. And so I'm trying to gain on these trucks, and I'm making it, I'm making it. And I, all of a sudden, I see a curve, and a car start coming out of it. And I'm like, I'm not going to make this. Like, there's no way possible. But the guys behind me have already closed ranks, and so there's no way to get back in. Think Talladega. And so I'm, I'm figuring out at the last minute, I'm like, I'm going to have to put this thing in the ditch. And so I, I throw it into the other side of the road. I just go off the road onto what would then be the right side of the road because everything's backwards. Um, so I go across the road and that car in front of me, I watch them, the, the cars just smash into each other. And I'm like, I don't even know what to do. And our friend's are like, you can't stop here. You can't stop here. They will blame you and vigilante justice will carry the day. Because there's this tradition of like, assaulting the person who causes the accident. And so he said, we've got to get to the next police checkpoint, so go. And so we go get in it. There's no highway patrolman to call. You go to a police checkpoint. It's just a place where the police are. And so we start driving there, and we get almost there when all of a sudden these three cars come flying up uh, Fast and the Furious style, and they cut us off, and they hem us in, and all of a sudden we are surrounded by like 45 grown men yelling and screaming and shaking our car and trying to force the doors open. And one of my friends is trying to explain to them that we're not running away. We're going to the police checkpoint. Meet us at the police checkpoint. And everybody is angry and furious. And there's this moment where we're sure that we are getting, like we don't know what's going to happen. There's a good chance that we're going to, be assault, physically assaulted, maybe killed. 
And out of nowhere, this man whose face I cannot see just walks into the crowd and he just walks through them as if they're not even there. Just like, like he's not even pushing them out of the way. He just slides between them. And he says something that I don't hear and don't understand. And all of a sudden, everybody takes a deep breath. And they say, okay, we'll follow you to the police station. They go to the police station. I get a ticket for passing in a no-passing zone, even though there's no lines on the road. (laughs) I pay 300 bucks. And I bless the two guys who uh, were in the car wreck and say, here's a little bit of money to fix your car. And... uh, and we live and we get home. You may never uh, have seen an angel or you're not sure if you have or not, but they exist and the Bible talks about them. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus is greater than the angels in five ways. He's the unique son of God, meaning he's closer to God than the angels. Second, he, uh, the angels worship Jesus. Third, the angels are transient creatures, but Jesus is the creator. Four, angels are transient creatures, but Jesus is never changing. And five, angels stand to serve God, but Jesus sits in the presence of God, his Father. I'm not going to give you all those. I gave them to you last week. If you want them, come see me. I'll give them all to you again. But today, I want to work through the first one really slowly. The first one in that verse, in, in verse five, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. You see, first, um, this preacher goes to two famous quotations from the Old Testament. And he goes to where uh, God calls a human king, my son, in Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, he says, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. And then he picks up 2 Samuel chapter 7. uh, And he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Many of us don't know the Bible well enough to know the story behind uh, those two quotations, but the people he's writing to did. And so let me just fill you in. The story behind those two quotations, 2 Samuel 7 or 2 Chronicles 13, is where the story is. It's the same story in two places. But God has made himself known to a group of people uh, that have grown into a nation uh, called the Israelites. And they have a king, uh, and his name is David. And David has finally unified all 12 tribes and he's defeated their enemies and they have relatively peace and prosperity. And David has enough time and enough money and enough success to build himself a fancy palace. And there in his palace, he looks down and he sees that the ark, that like God's temple, God's worship space is still a tent. It is, it is literally curtains on fancy poles. And he is... He's concerned about this. He said, how could I possibly live in such a nice place when God lives in a tent? I'm going to build God a house. And that night, uh, God shows up to a prophet named Nathan and tells him to not worry, to tell David not to worry about building him a house. And he starts to make these crazy promises to David that God is going to make one of David's descendants king forever, that someone of David's bloodline will always sit on the throne over Israel, and that he'll rule with perfect justice and perfect mercy, that he will make right decision after right decision after right decision with perfect love. And all the kingdoms and all the nations and all the ethnic groups of all the world will submit to this man's kingship. 
But it's not just that they'll submit, that all who recognize him and his righteousness and his perfect justice, they will see that and they'll honor that and they'll, uh, they'll, they'll submit to that and they will receive exceeding blessings. But all the Israelites from David uh, to now realize that these promises to David, these promises that I will put one of your children on a throne and they will last forever and they will do it perfectly and all the world will flock to them are so big that none of David's immediate descendants came anywhere close to fulfilling them. This king has cosmic and eternal reign and yet he is human. And Israel quickly comes to realize that God is not making small promises, but he is promising a rescuer who is utterly un- an utterly unique conqueror who will rescue Israel and bless the whole world, who will atone for sin, who will destroy wicked people without destroying us, who will destroy evil without destroying us, who will destroy sin without destroying sinners. And they come to call this one they're expecting, this one who is promised, they come to call him the Messiah, which is a, uh, it's a Hebrew word. It just means the anointed one, the one who has been marked as holy and anointed. In Greek, the word is translated Christ. And Hebrews is saying, like every book in the New Testament, that Jesus is that one. He's the promised one. And he's not just like God's son. He is God's unique son. He is the cosmic and eternal king of righteousness and peace. He is the king who has come to save and to judge. He is absolutely human, and yet he's higher than every human, higher even than the angels, because he is the Son of God. He has an intimate and a uniquely intimate relationship with God the Father, because he has from all time shared in the glory and joy and essence of the Father. He has shared the worship of the angels. He shared in the creation of the world. He shares in the, the, the unchanging nature of God. That's what he goes on to say. Hebrews gets this idea from the words and the life of Jesus. Let me just kind of help you remember some of these things. The people who were there when Jesus was baptized in the river by his cousin John, they remember that the heavens opened up and there was a voice that cried out, This is my son, my beloved. I am really well pleased with him. And then Jesus in his own words over and over again in places like John 3 and John 5 and John 17, he will say things like the father loves the son. Like just just bluntly and simply, the father loves the son. The father loves the son and he gives the son everything he has. The father loves the son and he tells me everything and we partner together on everything. The father loves the son. One of Jesus' best friends, a dude named John, summarizes it this way. It says, no one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God, who is in the bosom of the Father, has shown us what God is like. That's an odd phrase for us as uh, 21st century Americans, in the bosom of the Father. But what he's describing is a uniquely intimate relationship. Who is closest to the Father has made the Father's heart known. He's using graphic language. It's, it's of... It's of um, of like Jesus with his head on the Father's chest, listening to the Father's heartbeat and then verbalizing that to us. You see, Christianity is unique among the world's faiths and it teaches that God is triune. 
Triune is a fancy word, but the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of the triune God is this, that God is one being who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who constantly love and exalt and glorify one another. We see this all throughout it, but the Father glorifying the Son and the Holy Spirit, making much of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, setting them up and and, and drawing attention to them. And then we see the Spirit drawing men unto the Son, drawing women unto the Son, reminding us, of, of the greatness of Jesus and showing us the love of the Father. And then we see the Son who makes much of his Heavenly Father, who is constantly praising his Heavenly Father and drawing human beings to his Heavenly Father and who is giving the Holy Spirit and is, and is telling them, you got to be so pumped about the Holy Spirit because when the Holy Spirit comes, it's going to be better than when I was here. There is this unique dynamic in the heart of God that is unique to Christianity where God is three persons who are constantly about the other, who are constantly making much of the other, who every time you start talking to one of them, they start talking about the other two. The father's like, you got to meet my son. And the son's like, have you ever seen my daddy? And the spirit is in the middle glorifying both of them. One of my favorite Christians, a man named C.S. Lewis, describes it this way in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, These words are are dynamite, so you might want to listen. It says, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they glorify each other. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exalt, commune with, and defer to one another. In Christianity, God is not an impersonal thing or a static state, not even just one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a, kind, a life, a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. The pattern of this three-personal life is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but this is what Christianity wants you to believe and think about when you think about God. Not as a monad sitting somewhere else, not as an old man in the sky with a long beard, not as an impersonal force that doesn't know your name, but God is this dynamic exchange of love, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit constantly revolving around one another like molecules inside of an atom, like uh, neutrons and protons and electrons uh, spiraling around one another, held together in community and love. Three persons and one being. But why does this matter to you? Why is this good news? Why does this matter to us? And I'll give you two points. And they'll take me a minute to develop. And that's why I'm only making two today. The first is that the universe This means that the universe is essentially relational. That loving, self-giving, the self-giving love is the foundation of all reality. If there is no God, then the experience of love may feel significant to you. But evolutionary naturalists will tell you that the ecstasy of a first kiss or a 50th anniversary or holding your child when he's born is merely a high created in your brain by a bunch of different chemicals meant to manipulate you into procreation. If there is no God, Love 
is simply a chemically altered state. But for Christians who believe in the Trinity, God is a community of love. For Christians, self-giving, other-focused, other-glorifying relationships are at the very center of reality. The very core of everything that is, is this other-focused, you-first, I-love-you-you-love-me kind of reality. Think about what this actually means. That's a crazy idea. It's cosmic, and, 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 and it may feel a little bit... Um, Cerebral, but think with me. Don't give up. There's this famous American Christian, a man named Jonathan Edwards, uh, who was uh, pivotal in the Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards meditated on this reality for hours until he had this aha moment. And you can almost picture Jonathan Edwards, this incredibly dour man, uh, coming up and he says, wait, God must be eternally happy. Like God must be eternally happy. And when I read that the first time, I thought, that sounds really flippant. Like, I don't picture God being happy. But think about this with me. Imagine there is a person you admire and respect more than anyone else in the entire world. You would do anything for them, anything to see them satisfied and happy and successful, to see them flourishing and made much of. You got that person in your head? Now imagine you discover that person feels the exact same way about you. That they admire you and respect you and they would do anything to please you and to accomplish your joy. And imagine you enter into a lifelong relationship with this person, maybe a friendship or a romantic marriage, and you spend the rest of your life loving and serving and respecting and enjoying the person in the world you respect most out of anybody. And in return, you are loved and served and respected and praised and enjoyed by the person you most admire in all of creation. The one person whose praise means the most to you, you get every single day. And every day you get to sit there and shower love and joy and fun and happiness on the person you most want to be happy and filled with joy. Sounds like heaven, doesn't it? According to the Trinity, it sounds like heaven because it is from heaven because it comes from heaven. That is what God has known in the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity, except in depths and degrees that are infinitely unimaginable to us as finite beings. We get a small taste of it in the best of our marriages and the best of our friendships. But what God has experienced from all eternity is that to the nth degree. We long for this kind of love but we were created, because we were created by the joy of God And we exist to participate in that joy. You see, according to Christians, God did not create to express his power or to remedy some lack in God. Rather, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit explode with joy and ecstasy of love. And they create in order to share this goodness and joy and happiness and delight with the created beings. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit pour into each other and into the world perfect goodness and love and beauty. And it draws us in to reciprocate by giving ourselves holy heartedly to God and one another. 
And so as Christians, we have to reject other versions of the world. The world is not built on the foundation of competition or violence, but of cooperation and love. Reality is not the product of random chance, but of relational exuberance. Reality is not the product of necessity, but of never-ending joy. Think about what this means for you and I personally. Don't you want joy? Don't you believe at heart that you were created for this existential, joyful meaningfulness? Don't you want that kind of exuberance and overflowing happiness that is a blessing to the people around you? This means that if you want to be happy, if you want to be completely alive, if you want to be real, you must give yourself away. You must give yourself and love to God and other people. You cannot be happy any other way because reality does not work that way. I'd be a fool if I didn't stop here to challenge you dads and you moms. Are you building Are you modeling your parents on this kind of relationship of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? Are you building it off of Pinterest and your own flawed parents? Are you exalting and lifting up and celebrating your kids? Are you disciplining them in love for them because you want the best for them? Or are you disciplining them because you don't want them to embarrass you? You cannot find ultimate meaning or happiness in competition. In championships like the Golden State Warriors just won or in building the biggest company, doing so will always leave you hungry for more because reality is not built on the basis of competition or power, but on relationships and cooperations. By all means, work hard at your job and do it with excellence. But imagine how your career would change if you saw other people in the office as colleagues rather than competitors. You could get help when you needed it without feeling weak. And you could give help without feeling like you were sabotaging your own career. You could build up your coworkers and invest in your employees and you'd find then that your success is all tied up in their success. Imagine if you saw other moms as compatriots in the trenches of toddlerhood rather than as measuring sticks on Pinterest by which I evaluate my own success. Imagine if comparison just disappeared from your life and was replaced with enjoying the love you have and learning from others how you might love better. Lives built on comparison ultimately crush us because they are built on a false foundation of competition and power, which is out of place in a world built on the foundation of other-focused love. This week I was reminded that we know this at a gut level and we are reminded of it. We've been taught this in in childhood movies and stories like the, the movie Toy Story. Go home, watch it and see how this dynamic is at play as you watch toys tear apart a nursery fighting for love that they already have. But I'm old school and I was recently reminded that I learned this not in movies but in a book, an old book called The Velveteen Rabbit. Anybody ever read The Velveteen Rabbit? Let me read you a few passages from The Velveteen Rabbit that tell this truth in beautiful narrative form. The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath. 
Most of his hairs on his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise, for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger, and by and by to break their mainsprings and pass away. He knew that they were only toys, and they would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful, and only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced, like the skin horse, understand all about it. What is real? asked the rabbit one day, when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy up the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside of you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just playing with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, the rabbit asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become, and it takes a long time. And that's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges, who have been carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes dropped out and you get loose in the joints and you're very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. If love is the center of reality then you are most real when you are most loved and when you are most loving. And the one who is the center of reality knew this better than we did. And when he saw us in desperate desire and competition and violence trying to prove our lovability, he stepped in. And like the Velveteen Rabbit, was loved to death. Loved unrecognizable on the cross gave himself, spent himself in self-giving love to us. And yet we found him to be more real than any of us have ever dared dream possible. The second reason it matters that Jesus is the Son of God in unique relationship with the Father is because that is the relationship he offers to you. You may have had a great dad who makes this easy to believe, or you may have a terrible dad, and all of this language of father and son is brutal on your heart. But Jesus knew bad dads. Every dad in the Bible has immense moral failures, fails their kids, and sets them up often for terrible pain. And yet Jesus comes and he says, if you believe in me, you are given the right to be called a child of God. You are given the right to move into this dynamic, self-giving, other-focused love for all eternity. One of Jesus' best friends, Peter, said that you will become a partaker in the divine nature. You will, in the words of the Velveteen Rabbit, be real.
Jesus, love us until we're real. Forbid it that we would be people who easily break and so are unlovable. But would we be people who stay the course and become real as we give ourselves away, even with the pain and the disappointment that that entails, that we might also enjoy the ecstasy and the joy and the exuberance that you have with your Father in heaven. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.